Welcome to another special A Shot in the Arm podcast with me, Ben Plumley. Well, we're in San Francisco. We're in New Digs today. We're in the San Francisco Community Health Center. It's a busy, thriving health center, so we may hear a bit of noise. Bear with us. Now, one of the often raised questions that we get from our subscribers, from our listeners and our viewers is, why don't we cover questions of innovation and equity outside of infectious disease? And uh, an example that is often put to us um, is the question of reconstructive surgery for people with cleft palates, uh, with folk who have burn injuries, and indeed other procedures. Um, in of course, in the industrialized world, these are uh, procedures that would be done fairly regularly and normally. But in emerging countries, that's uh, perhaps a different issue. And of course, in sub-Saharan Africa, 93% of all people still don't have access to surgical uh, care. So it's an important issue and one we've really been wanting to cover. And uh, today, we are going to meet an incredible organization, Resurge International, which was originally founded in 1969. But it's important because it has really led a journey that many of us in global health have followed, moving from providing individual emergency care and support to establishing deep partnerships in support of country-driven health providers, in this case with surgeons and hospitals and universities across Africa and beyond, helping them build ground up the high-quality, accessible surgical care capacity. So let's meet our guests. First up, Dr. Jim Chang, Consulting Medical Officer at Resurge. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ben. So tell us a bit about Resurge uh, and yourself, how you fit in. Sure. First, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I understand you just flew back from uh, Kenya, so we appreciate it. Uh, I am the Professor-in-Chief of Plastic Surgery at Stanford University. That's my day job, but I'm also the CMO for Resurge International. And I've been doing that for nine years. Uh, research, as you said, has been around for 50 years and has its roots at Stanford. And so we've evolved from um, team trips where we're uh, operating to really teaching and training the next generation of surgeons, many times the first generation of reconstructive surgeons in that country. Brilliant. Well, we're looking forward to learning much more about y y your work. Um, we're also joined by Natalie Myers, who is the Chief Program Officer. Natalie, welcome. What does the Chief Program Officer do at Resurge? Uh, a little bit of everything, <laughs> which uh, is a lot of fun for me. Um, so we work across 19 countries, and so I'm the one leading to make sure all these partnerships are happening. Um, all of our partners, 92% of our work is done by our local surgeons, so we have a reimbursement model where we actually help to ensure that patients can get 100% free care. Um, and then getting to work with incredible surgeons like these has been a lot of fun for me. I've been in uh, global health for the last 15 years, and I was actually just shared with Dr. Maguti today that my first time where I knew I loved global health was on a visit to my sister in Peace Corps in Zimbabwe in his same town. Um, when I was 13 years old. So we just figured that connection today. So that was pretty exciting. Brilliant. And and so you you point to our guest of honor, last and absolutely by no means least, 
Professor Godfrey Maguti, you're professor of surgery at the University of Zimbabwe, yes. amongst any many other roles. Now, I, I mean, I think somewhat as Natalie said, there is a very soft spot in the hearts of everyone in the Bay Area for Zimbabwe. Um, I myself have worked there since, gosh, I suppose the beginning of the 2010s in uh, HIV and uh, reproductive health. Um, it's really brilliant that you're here with us. Um, so. Tell us a bit about how the University of Zimbabwe is doing and how you got to be involved with research. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank Research International for inviting me to come to their, to their gala and giving me this opportunity to be at this podcast. So the University of Zimbabwe is the oldest university in the country and is the leading university. It has got uh, a student population of about 18,000. And um, it's been around, I think, as far as I remember, for just over 70 years. And, and I think we think of it as a regional center of excellence. Often people coming into Southern Africa think of, you know, uh, University of Cape Town or Witz in uh, Johannesburg. But actually, UZIM has really established itself as a as a center for training, but also for research, right? Yes, it is. And um, I think it's got a very strong international reputation. And these products are well sought after worldwide. Brilliant. Well, let's uh, get into the first issue, shall we? Reconstructive surgery, the desperate need for it in emerging markets. And um, Jim and Godfrey, if I could come to you first... Just, just what is the problem? What are we talking about here? Sure. So uh, reconstructive surgery is, I call it surgery on for the unlucky patients who are born with a congenital problem or they've suffered an accident like a burn or a road traffic accident or they have cancer and need reconstruction. And in uh, the United States, Ben, if, if you had a burn, the next day we'd have you in the operating room, we'd clean off that tissue and put a skin graft and you'd be along your way. But in many countries around the world, without access to surgery, that big burn wound will scar and, and cause the arm to contract so that arm's not useful. So when we do reconstructive surgery, we release that type of scar and, and, and do that. So the techniques are based on principles. There's not a lot of high-tech equipment that's necessary, but we can do a lot of good with pretty simple techniques and, and training. Godfrey, I mean, in Zimbabwe, it's a, a mixture of, I suppose, one or two heavy urbanized cities, um, you know, Harare, and I'm blocking on the... Bulawayo. Bulawayo, that's right. Um, but then, of course, a lot of rural areas in between. So how is it playing out uh, the issue of access to reconstructive surgery in Zimbabwe? Yes, so the disease burden is quite substantial of reconstructive surgery. I'm in the unique position that uh, in my surgical career, I've run an integrated uh, general surgery and reconstructive surgery service, um, having trained in both uh, in Edinburgh, in Scotland. Um, and 25% of the work that I do is the plastic reconstructive surgery. And uh, the remaining 75 is general surgery. So I've got... Um, a very good understanding of the extent of the problem. And the unfortunate thing is in the area where I work, uh, the disease burden is large. Um, 
and um, there are not enough surgeons with capacity, or in fact, hardly enough surgic surgeons with capacity to deal with these complex reconstructive problems that Jim has uh, alluded to. So, Natalie, uh, in the sort of broader global context, um, while, I mean, we saw this from, from the comments that we get from our subscribers, but this isn't something, reconstructive surgery is not something that sort of sits on the forefront of global health minds. Why is that, do you think? Uh, that's a great question. And you'll see a lot, unfortunately, in global health that the funding does not align with the disease burden. So there's 5 billion people worldwide who don't have access to timely, affordable, and safe surgical care. And that burden of disease is three times larger than HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria all combined, yet receives a tiny portion of funding, if any. Um, currently, the U.S. government does not fund global surgery. So there's actually a great advocacy group, the G4 Alliance, which advocates for global surgery and anesthesia, as well as obstetric care. And we've been working to get language into the congressional budget the last couple of years, which we've happily successfully done. Um, but there's still no funding mandate and there's no global fund for it. Uh, the Global Surgery Foundation actually just launched a couple of years ago, and they have a big announcement coming up at the World Health Assembly this May that we're really excited about. So as a little tickler for others uh, following the global surgery space. But the reality is, is that the funding is not proportionate to the burden of disease. And that's why this work is so critical. Well, we will be at the World Health Assembly podcasting daily. So I know who I need to get in touch with. <laughs> so if the U.S. isn't stepping up, who is? Are there any national or multilateral donors that are making a contribution? Honestly, it's really not being done. Um, so there is a group that another thing that the UN is pushing for is called the INSOPS, which are the nat National Obstetric and Surgical Plans in Anesthesia done at the country level. Um, and there's a group out of Harvard as well that's helping to push each country to do those. And as you know, with new policies, it's still there's no funding line item attached to those. But it's really not being looked at at that larger global multilateral level as of yet, so, which is what we're working on. So no Dutch or Nordic funding that goes into this there. That's that's something we we really have to come back to. And you mentioned uh, AIDS, TB and malaria. And I, I, I will, later on, I want to challenge you, but also look at a, a, a way forward. Um, so, Godfrey, the... The situation in Zimbabwe before um, you became involved with, with research, um, as you've spent really all your career doing this, um, has it not been really frustrating? How have you kept yourself going? Yes, so it's been frustrating. That's the reason why I decided, um, in fact, uh, I think a couple of years after I became a consultant in general surgery, that the service we were offering in Zimbabwe was not good enough in the sense that there was a whole section of community of patients who were not really getting a service at all. They would be referred to a general surgical unit and uh, 
reconstructive problems can be quite complex. And the general surgeons would look at the patients, they know they can't deal with it, there's nobody else to refer to, and these people were just in the community. It was at that level that I said, you know, this cannot be right. And I, you know, went back and acquired a substantial amount of surgical skills in, in the Edinburgh Plastic Unit, after which I came back and they started offering a holistic service, filling a, a niche that was really not filled before. At that time, I was working in Blue Whale. And, um, you know, just to give you some idea, in the years that uh, surgery has been practiced in Zimbabwe, which is just over 100 years, there has never been a, a stage uh, to which uh, there has been more than one or two plastic surgeons in the country. Um, and this brings me to the impact that uh, my college, the College of Surgeons of East Central Southern Africa, has had in the region uh, by providing a forum which uh, surgeons could use to actually train and acquire qualifications in reconstructive surgery. Because before, universities uh, did not really establish this program because universities have got certain you know, ordinances. They have to go by, meet certain critical criteria for staffing and so on before they establish programs. So this program was never really established. And so when our college came along um, using a collegiate model of training, it was now possible to have a forum that surgeons could use to train in reconstructive surgery. Uh, yeah, I think that is really interesting that you and your colleagues pulled together and created a regional um, collegiate, a regional network of, of surgeons um, you know, there's one other thing I, I wanted to raise with you. So you went to Edinburgh to learn these skills. So often, the really well-trained health professionals in Zimbabwe have been poached by the British National Health Service. So it's wonderful to see that you went back. You weren't tempted to stay in Edinburgh. Uh, so at the time I was training, um, the economy was very strong in Zimbabwe. And all the surgeons who trained overseas at that time their remit was to go overseas, train, acquire the skills, and come back. Because uh, the level of remuneration at that stage was not very different from overseas. And in fact, when I went to train in the UK, the Zimbabwe dollar at that stage was stronger than the United States dollar. So this temptation to train and stay overseas for my generation of surgeons, was not really there. That's a relief to hear. And, y y you know, it's a, it's a short time uh, ago and things go round and round. And who knows, maybe that will be the case again in a, a few years' time with our banking crises here in the US. Mm. But, um, Jim and Natalie, if you could take us back and give us a sense of the history of research, how it started, you know, just its sort of key milestones. Yeah. Absolutely. So research started 50 years ago. It was formerly known as Interplast. And my uh, predecessor as chief of plastic surgery at Stanford was really visionary. He um, first had a child he saw in Mexico, a teenager with cleft lip who was living with the cleft lip. And that patient 
was came to the United States to Stanford for an operation. So surely there's a better economic pathway than that. So he began the concept, Donald Laub, of going to another country and doing these so-called team trips. Um, from there, uh, we realized that it's more important to have trained doctors in the local community who can operate all the time. So we began to train surgeons who would stay and uh, we would reimburse them like an insurance company for those cases. We would review the cases. Uh, I came in in 2014 as the chief medical officer, and our vision was to really expand the training. Many of our donors and board members were saying, how are you going to scale this? How are you going to break away from training a few people, but really training uh, many people? So the idea of you know teach a person to fish, well, I wanted to bring in fishing academies, really set up large residency programs in many places. So that's our focus now, how to not only deliver reconstructive surgery, but really train those people who will be the pioneers in their countries. And that's why it was such a godsend to meet Godfrey uh, nine years ago. Do you know, it, it's interesting in doing research for this podcast, um, came across a lot in the literature about uh, what we call saviors in white coats that come into countries that do surg surgeries for, say, a week, week and a half, and then fly out. And that's great for the individuals concerned, but it's it's not really a good statement of solidarity and support. And and there still seem to be very significant <clears throat> um, funding requests for this type of approach. How was it that research understood, I think, well in advance, perhaps, of the rest of us, of the need for you know the Western experts essentially to be partners in service rather than the saviors in white coats. You know, it really was, and it's an ongoing evolution in thought because uh, on the one hand, when you bring an entire team and all the equipment to a site, you are um, ensuring that everyone knows each other and they're used to working together and they know the equipment. Um, but we really learned that to make a big, big difference, you have to train people on local equipment and in local conditions, finding local solutions to, to problems. And so that takes more work. You have to uh, really ensure high safety. You have to do site visits and make sure everything's up to snuff. Um, you know, we have a wide and varied board and staff who have many different opinions. And, um, you know, it's an iterative process of getting to a stage where you feel like you're doing the right thing. So so what is the solution? We've talked about the, the scale of the problem um, and the lack of trained surgeons across the, across uh, sub-Saharan Africa and beyond. What is the solution that research and partners have come up with? I mean, I don't know, Natalie, if you could kick off on that. Sure, I'd love to. Um, I mean, really, it has been and is about local capacity building. I think COSEXA and our partnership with research is this beautiful example. And these two men are quite humble about really the impact they've had on the entire region of 14 countries um, where, you know, Professor Maguti wasn't just looking to how can I change things in Zimbabwe? These two people are really looking at changing it across the continent. Uh, we're building partnerships with universities right now. We have partnerships with Stanford, Johns Hopkins, as well as Northwestern, pairing them with different universities and really seeing that as an exchange in knowledge. I feel like the idea is not revolutionary, and yet um, I do think it's taken global health quite a long time to put the partners in the lead. And I think that that was also a, um, 
unintended positive consequence from COVID too, that it pushed a lot of people to move in that direction. Because if we're not able to fly there for two and a half, three years, how many of those patients aren't being treated versus utilizing our local partners and complementing their work, supplementing them in their incredible work that they do. I think I see our role as just providing resources for them. Um, And sometimes that is academic and educational resources because of the countries they're in. But that's not forever. You know, once you build them up, um, and I think a most exciting milestone that we haven't yet mentioned is just this year, we rolled out and launched a plastic and reconstructive surgery curriculum for all of COSEXA that was a vision built by these two men. Now, you mentioned COSEXA, which I guess is the network you Godfrey referred to earlier on. Just remind our viewers and listeners of what COSEXA is, if you would. Thank you. So COSEXA uh, is now 23 years old uh, as COSEXA. But in actual fact, if you look at its history, it's now just over 70 years old because it is a successor of what used to be the Association of Surgeons of East Africa, which was a fraternity of surgeons in the East Central Southern African region that organized conferences about three, three times a year where surgeons had a forum to meet, um, exchange ideas, network, and uh, there was already a governance structure of that organization. So within that organization, there was a, a discussion that started in the 1980s to say that um, the university-based medical programs were not uh, managing to address the surgical manpower gap in the region. So there was really a need to find another forum to complement the training that was going on in the universities. And the discussion of forming a college started then in the 80s, um, and it matured in the late 1990s. And in 1999, we formed this college. It was formed on the, more or less, the structures of the British colleges. And um, the Edinburgh College was quite central in setting up those structures. Um, And it was um, after the college was inaugurated in 1999 that um, we established training programs uh, to begin with for the major surgical specialties. Um, And later on, we introduced all the other surgical specialties. And that provided uh, another forum for training surgeons in the region that, uh, as we reflect, has now made such a big impact that um, when you look at all the surgeons who have been trained in our region, the college training has now surpassed the surgeons that have been trained in the universities over the years. As I speak, when we graduated uh, our young surgeons in Vindok, Namibia in December, we it now cumulatively graduated about 758 surgeons in 23 years. Yeah. And our vision is to breach the 1,000 mark in the next few years um, and carry on. Yeah. Yes. So talk to us a bit about the, um, this curriculum that, that Natalie mentioned. Uh, 
Jim, if you could kick us off, what, what did you guys got in mind when you created it? Well, we wanted something that was accessible to all the trainees in the 14 different countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so I've got, I got all my buddies across academic programs in the U.S. Many of them have big hearts and wanted to do this stuff. They put together two to three hour PowerPoint lectures with a pretest and a post-test and uh, cases for discussion. We used local African cases uh, to be relevant in that area. And so the entire curriculum or specialty of plastic surgery is broken down into 24 topics. And all of these are available online free to anyone who's tr who wants to train in reconstructive surgery. They can take tests, they can um, get evaluated, they can have discussions about cases. And so that virtual library is a very organic living library. Of course, as surgeons, we still need to operate. Um, at surgery, you know, we're tailors, we're bespoke tailors. So we need to feel the material, we have to feel it and, 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 and touch it. And so that curriculum allows the trainee to get up to speed so that when we're in the operating room with the trainees, uh, they've, they're already ready to go and to, and to operate. And Godfrey, how's it played out in Zimbabwe? Well, actually across the region, taking these tools, have you, presumably they're part of the, the, the training that you will provide uh, these 750, hopefully 1,000, hopefully more students? Yes. Um, maybe I can, uh, there's just some facts that I would like to mention which show the impact. Uh, we're talking about reconstructive surgery that uh, the college in the first instance has made and our partnership with Research International plus um, a few other like-minded plastic surgery organizations like Second Chance in Geneva, Smile Train, and Operation Smile, who I believe are based in the United States. Uh, there are just some important figures I want to share. So, when the college started for the first 10 years, we didn't really produce uh, uh, plastic surgeons. We only, I think by 2009, it produced two in two years. Uh, I became pro program director in 2009 because the uh, I'd gone to the UK for about four years where I was working. Uh, I'd taken a long sabbatical and made a conscious effort when I came back to introduce uh, a plastic surgery training program because I thought this was absolutely essential. And at that time, I was on the college council and became program director of reconstructive surgery. So I was really at the center of um, driving the specialty. And I must say that from those two, in the last 10 years, we have now produced through the college 53 plastic surgeons. And uh, that is thanks to the supporting organizations, uh, Research International, Second Chance, Smile Train, Operation Smile. They have uh, filled in the gap of the lack of capacity in terms of trainers. So the way the model has worked is that um, in those countries where there's been a surgeon who is trained in plastic surgery who can anchor the program, uh, the impact that these organizations have had in terms of support have been such that by the time the trainees finish their five years, 
they would have had enough exposure to have covered, as Jim said, with the curriculum that they've developed, the whole spectrum of reconstructive surgery to a point where the examiners who assess them are satisfied that they can pass out as examiners. Uh, and this is the impact this has had. And just to mention another aspect of this um, relationship is that um, these organizations have uh, provided funding uh, not only to enable educators to come into the region and run these intensive hands-on workshops, um, which is what Jim was talking about, you know, real skills transfer. Uh, after the workshops, the trainees and their program directors continue to consolidate on what they learn. And the next visit, you build on that to a point where in the five-year period of training, everybody is satisfied that uh, we actually now have plastic surgeons. And the beauty, uh, as has already been mentioned, is that you are training people in their own ground, dealing with conditions that they deal with, um, to a level where they become independent of you and they can actually then become the trainers of the next group of surgeons. And this has got a big multiplier effect. And uh, before I finish, I'd just like to share with you. So when I started the program in Zimbabwe in 2010, there were no plastic surgeons there. Today we've trained five plastic surgeons. Uh, and I am aware that uh, in other countries like um, you know, Ethiopia, the number of plastic surgeons has significantly increased. In my recent count, I think they were over 30. In Uganda, they are about 13. Kenya is about 13. Uh, and Malawi uh, has got about four. So the number of plastic surgeons uh, is increasing. And with the help of our organizations that are collaborating with us, it's also possible within the region for trainees to move from countries which are weaker to rotate in countries that are stronger. Uh, and as you will appreciate, to achieve all this, you need substantial financial support, which our collaborators have kindly mm -hmm. offered. So so to be clear, when, when you started, there were no plastic surgeons in Zimbabwe. Yes. Today, how many are there working in country? Right. So this is the beauty of my college. Um, we have um, done a number of studies uh, that have consistently shown that uh, if you train people adequately on their home ground, the retention rate is very high. Mm -hmm. Within my college, the retention rate in the region is about 84%. Uh, in my own country, as I said, uh, we have so far trained five uh, plastic reconstructive surgeons and four are uh, in the country. Only one has uh, moved uh, to, to the UK. Oh. So, Let's see what so, we can do to bring him back. <laughs> so, so really, uh, I don't think there could be you know, a better way yeah. of providing manpower. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's clearly, it's clearly uh, an approach that works. 
And so this sort of gets us on to the sort of broader context. Um, and, you know, we talked, Natalie, about at the start, why isn't this more of a, a global health priority? It's it's not part of the um, UHC, Universal Healthcare Strategy, that's being developed by the UN. There's going to be a, a high-level session on it at the UN General Assembly in September. And I, I, I just wonder... What are your thoughts about how we incorporate this work into, um, you know, a sort of a basic standard of care? Because clearly we're not talking about, and I, I'm sorry to sound so simplistic, we're not talking about people having uh, facelifts or nose jobs. What we're talking about are essentially, you know, life-changing and life-threatening conditions. So what do we do to get it uh, to the top of the table? Well, recently the World Bank just identified surgery as one of the best investments that you can make. With $1 of investment in surgery, that will give you $10 in productivity economic gains for the society. So I think where historically people might have thought more is infectious disease and surgery might seem like a luxury. And I think there is a real misunderstanding around that versus that it's actually an essential part of any health system and shows the strength of it really well because you need an entire surgical team. You have to have good nursing. You have to have safe anesthesia. Um, with reconstructive surgery, you have to have occupational therapy and follow-up. So it's actually a great indicator and predictor of a health system strength. Um, and so I think that we are getting there and it will be considered it is a part of essential universal health care. Um, and I think that it it's a little bit um, we'd be remiss not to include it as an essential part. I mean, something that immediately strikes me from what all three of you have said is the role of reconstructive surgery in obstetrics. And, you know, clearly that's something the whole um, uh, pregnancy, sexual and reproductive health, that's an area I work very strongly in. There immediately seems to be some commonality there, some some way of joining the dots. Um, and I don't know, Jim, in, in your work with fellow surgeons here in the United States and abroad, ha has that struck you? Is, the, is that something that you're working on? Oh, there are um, many uh, women's issues related to reconstructive surgery. Um, women are disproportionately more uh, suffering from burn injuries, with open, open cooking flames in, in many countries. I always say the uh, the combination of a sari, the Indian dress, and open cooking flame is, is a terrible one. Um, there are also conditions of cancers that evolve, and as well as uh, obstetrics conditions. So the principles we teach in reconstructive surgery can be used for anyone, and unfortunately, many of them are women and children who, who need reconstructive surgery. Back to Nat Natalie's point on a microcosm, she talked about the financial impact. Um, donors always ask me that. Why should I give you $300 for one child when I can immunize 100 children uh, against some infectious disease? Well, that child may be a five-year-old. I saw a child in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh, who had a severely burned arm, so much so that the wrist was fused to the shoulder. Oh, So now that child can't go to school and likely has a mother or father who can't go to work to stay home to take care of that child. So with two hours of surgery, we were able to release that arm put skin grafts on, recreate the burn, put skin grafts on, and a month later that child can return to school 
and the parent is free to go about their uh, occupation. So if you think of the um, long-term uh, actuarial amount of financial impact, it, when I set, when I give that example to donors, then they get it. They, they, they see the value of it. And I can imagine why research probably puts you in front of a lot of donors. That's a, a very compelling example. Um, and, and it really resonates with me because if you are looking to uh, empower poorer households, really no matter where you are, uh, what you don't want are the parents uh, unable to work and able to support their kids fully. And you don't want to be in a situation where uh, one or more of your kids or indeed one of the, the bread earners is um, unnecessarily um, uh, affected and could be could be treated in a very cost-effective manner. Um, now, Natalie, I'm going to come back to that comparison you made at the top, a challenge to me as um, an old AIDS activist about the investments that have gone to infectious disease, AIDS, TB, and malaria over the last 30 years that are really very significant. And, you know, that's a brownie point for us. We think that's great. But um, when we started doing that, it was out of concern that, you know, there wasn't any resource going into particularly HIV, a terribly you know, emerging threat in sub-Saharan Africa particularly. But here we are, 2020s, we've got to meet the Sustainable Development Goals 2030. We've got to join the dots. We've got to move out of silo thinking. What's your advice for folks like me working in the infectious disease world? What should we do to make sure that you you know, you've pulled up your seat at the table and we shut up and listen to you. Well, I don't think it's a zero-sum game, so I don't think you should be thinking of it that way, but it is really about growing the pie, and I do think it's essentially back to equity because when we think about surgery, we're often talking about quality of life. Of course, there are avertable deaths due to surgical conditions as well, but what we really see in reconstructive surgery is that we're allowing these people to live unnecessarily with a disability that you would just never see in the Western world. So it's such an essential question of equity. Um, and I think all of us in global health, it's just we need those multilaterals, USAIDs to come to the table and to make that investment in healthcare systems, because that's what it will require is investing in infrastructure in these countries in order to really grow the pie in investment in global health. And of course, coming out of COVID, we in the infectious disease world patted ourselves on the back because our investments in community health workers for AIDS, TB and malaria could be turned on a dime for COVID. But it's a, it's a, it's a, a very timely reminder. I mean, Godfrey, the rubber hitting the road, um, Zimbabwe has now seen significant investment in HIV through the US government's uh, PEPFAR program. Has that had any knock-on effects for you or uh, has it been hard to, um, you know, uh, break open the door and, and look at partnerships? Um, I hope I get the question right, but um, what I can say is that uh, the impact um, of all the interventions that um, 
have come to combat the HIV AIDS pandemic, uh, not only in Zimbabwe, but I would like to think, um, you know, across um, most of the countries uh, in the developing world has been huge. Because um, if I remember, I'm not a physician, but if I remember the statistics we had at the beginning have um, in recent years been completely reversed. Where at the beginning, if you got HIV AIDS, it was a death sentence. Uh, but now HIV AIDS, with all the research and new medications that have come on board, has now been converted into a chronic disease. And uh, the statistics are now reversed, where more than 85-90% of the people are actually on lifelong treatment. And uh, this has made a huge impact in terms of uh, the economic and social consequences, in both in my country and I would like to believe in, in the world at large. And I guess these, you know, people living with HIV, um, undetectable, untransmissible, um, they're going to be affected by burns in the kitchen, by their kids being born with cleft palates. So there is absolutely a an urgency for us to, as you rightly said, Natalie, demonstrate that this is not a zero-sum game. It's about making the, the, the cake bigger. Um, so COVID hits at the beginning of 2020. We've referred a little bit to how things have changed. What happened, Jim? How did it affect research? Well, like, like many of us, we had to pivot on the dime. And um, luckily, we have many of our local surgeons who we've uh, funded for years in their home communities. So they were still working in their home com communities. No one was flying around. So it made us really focus on our long-term partners. Secondarily, um, you remembered, uh, Ben, right before COVID, uh, none of us could get on a Zoom conference call. You know, at Stanford, we had a hand surgery conference and we couldn't connect Redwood City to Palo Alto. Uh, it took an hour to get the dial up, but then two months later, everything, everyone was online. So uh, we had we pivoted to many different virtual lecture series. Um, I still do one personally with the trainees in Zimbabwe. And the amazing thing about that is uh, every month, I'd, 8 a.m. Monday morning, I dial up. I see those six bright shining faces of uh, trainees in Zimbabwe. I know them by their first name. They're always prepared. Well, I show cases on the screen and we, we take them through the cases. In the old days, pre-COVID, pre-virtual training, if I went to Zimbabwe, I would meet three or four fantastic trainees. Maybe then I go back one year later, and maybe two are gone and there's still two. And in the third year I go back, there's one person who really wants to reconstruct a surgery. And I go, aha, that's the person I'm going to invest in. Now I see these six trainees every month. And by showing up virtually, I know they're one's people that I want to invest in. So the throughput of really trying identifying great trainees has sped up with um, with virtual training. So we incorporate virtual training in terms of live lectures, um, the curriculum, and those enhance our in-person training. I mean, Godfrey, on a practical level, um, COVID came. It meant that the kind of surgeries that you all would be doing were were sort of put on hold. Mm. Um, are you now seeing a backlog being, you know, sort of 
getting through that or or was Zimbabwe able to continue to uh, to manage cases as you needed? Well, I think we were affected just like every other country or health system um, because during COVID, we all prioritized emergencies and malignancies. And um, most of the elective cases were postponed. And in reconstructive surgery, apart from brain injuries, uh, most of the conditions are really elective. And so, if you like, during the COVID era, uh, I don't think it would be correct that we neglected the conditions, but we were forced to postpone. So, we've built a backlog uh, in these last two years that we are slowly working through. And given our limited capacity, it's really compounded the problem of the disease burden in the community. So, here we are in the Bay Area, uh, end of March 2023. Um, research is about to, or is in the process of launching a digital campaign to raise awareness, presumably raise, raise resources. Um, Natalie, can you tell us a bit about that and how perhaps our subscribers, listeners and viewers could help? Of course. Well, everyone can donate at research.org. So go there, check it out. Um, and then also really exciting coming up in the next couple of days, which is part of why we have the honor of having Dr. Maguti out here, is that we have our big fundraising gala that's taking place tomorrow. Well, where we'll be honoring Dr. Maguti and people can live stream that next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time in case they're interested to learn more about all that we're doing. And the specific campaign is called our Transformations Campaign, where we're hoping to raise $35,000 um, through all this initiative. And so people, we would love for people to contribute or just check out all of our great academic content for any budding, burgeoning surgeons out there. It's a little graphic. I'm not a clinician. <laughs> But if anyone's interested, we have a ton of great content and you can learn more about all that we do. The next generation human tailors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to stick with me. Um, but to be clear, I mean, obviously podcasts um, have a shelf, a longer shelf life than, than the news events. We'll make sure that we link in the show notes to the YouTube channel, to your uh, website so that folks can see the uh, the wonderful gala that's going to take place and seeing Godfrey getting embarrassed as he's given an award. And I hope it's a really huge award that <laughs> you you find difficult taking back to Harare. <laughs> Thank you. So um, as we wrap up, um, it's something we always do at the end of a shot in the arm. It's sort of ask guests what's keeping them sane. What are you watching, listening, reading? And, and Godfrey, perhaps I could start with you. You flew in yesterday from Zimbabwe. Um, were you reading anything or watching anything on the flight that stood out? Please not. Uh, literature about surgery. <laughs> so that's really interesting. I have always, uh, in my free time, uh, spent time reading uh, material completely out of medicine. And currently, I 
have been reading, interestingly, Barack Obama's uh, book, Promised Land. Uh, and that's what I was reading on the plane. Super. And that, I, I've got to say, um, Obama's um, book really has resonance for us today as much as um, uh, as when he wrote it. Um, Natalie, what about you? What's keeping you interested and occupied? Embarrassingly, I actually just finished a surgery novel, but it is a novel and it's phenomenal and I recommend it. Um, Cutting for Stone by Dr. Abraham Verghese uh, out of Stanford. Um, and it's this incredible epic novel about an Ethiopian surgeon and that goes through all these different generations. It's a, I would compare it a bit almost to Middlesex or one of these like great epic novels. Um, but unfortunately, that is the truth of <laughs> The global health confessed junkie. Um, so even for fun. <laughs> Love it. Jim, what about you? Well, I guess my guilty pleasure is uh, subscribing to the paper version of the Financial Times weekend only. I skip past the financial news and go to the second two sections, the home and garden and then the arts. I spend the whole week reading about fine wines and new books that come out. Uh, so that lasts me all week. And of course, I'm super excited because season four of Succession is about to drop next week. <laughs> That's right. That's certainly going to keep us occupied, particularly since uh, Rupert Murdoch, who, of course, isn't the inspiration for Succession, has just announced he's getting married again. Extraordinary. Well, I, I, I'm going to be a bit embarrassed to admit Having just come back from from Kenya, I was really struck by the billboards on the uh, Chinese-funded highways to and from the airport for a new season of Real Housewives of Nairobi. So <laughs> that's that's uh, something we're going to be binge watching. We just have to get Jim's good wine for that. That's yes, what I exactly. that's what I petition for. <laughs> well, well, brilliant. Um, thank you all so much for joining us. I think this has been a really important podcast. I think there's a lot here uh, for us to go back to our communities and work with. And I, um, and Natalie, I hope we will be able to see each other at the World Health Assembly. I'm looking forward to this exciting new announcement. Um, and please do keep us posted on um, you know, news and work that Research is, is doing. We would love to invite you all back on the podcast in the future. Thank you so much, Ben. Such thank a pleasure. you so much, Ben. Thank you. Well, everybody, thank you so much to our guests from Research International. Um, thanks to the San Francisco Community Health Center for hosting us in their chief executive officer's office. Thanks to Eric Espera, our director and producer from uh, NewsDoc Media. And finally, a big thanks for you. Thank you for uh, watching, for commenting, for sending us suggestions. In this episode, obviously, we listened to you um, as you were asking about global equity and access for reconstructive surgery. If there are any other issues that you think we should raise, please do contact us. Have a great week and a safe week, everybody. <laughs>